Well, we are at a milestone in uh, marker in the church. Some that we've had. This is a different kind. I think milestone markers are appropriate times to pause and to reflect. Think about where you've come from and where you're going. Um, and uh, as we've mentioned before, City Reform was planted just about 15 years ago. Um, we are in a building that was used for 120 years. So, we, we, you, know, we, you know, we're about a tenth of, that, of the way through that. And uh, if we could make it to 120 years as a congregation, I would be incredibly happy. That would be a great goal. And uh, we'll pray for those folks 120 years from now, and maybe they keep it rolling as well. But I wanted to pause and reflect a little bit on what it means to have enduring faithfulness. How do individuals, or more importantly, churches and groups of people, how do you continue to be faithful over time? How do you think about your future in a way that in, in, uh, helps you with uh, continuing in your mission. As a church, we're committed to the mission of honoring Jesus, growing in Him, proclaiming the hope that is in Him to the neighborhood, to the city, to the world around us. What do we need to be thinking about to continue doing that 15 years into the future or 150 years into the future? I'm going to read from a passage uh, from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, a reminder that there are witnesses that help testify but by looking to Jesus, we can run the race with endurance. Let me read the passage and we'll affirm together that this is God's word. Hebrews 12, 1-3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. I want to point out three things in this passage. First, the role of witnesses. Secondly, the, the challenges of life and the need to look to Jesus for endurance. And finally, the need to find our joy in the joy of Jesus. So the call of witnesses, the uh, uh, hardness of ministry and, and endurance through Jesus, and finally the joy of Jesus. And there's a brief outline if you need help following along. First of all, the witnesses. One of the strangest things about buying a used building is that it used to belong to someone else. Maybe you've had that experience before with a used car, and when you opened the, the, the glove compartment, you found all sorts of stuff in there that wasn't your own. Or maybe an old house that had nooks and crannies where old baseball cards or toys tumbled down from, and you found yourself saying, where did this come from? Well, I bet there's a story behind that. Maybe an old house with something carved into a tree, and you wonder, where did that come from, and who put it there? Well, we bought an old building, and I think you all know that. There's some parts of it that are very old. Some of them are old in the way that makes them antique. They're beautiful, wood and you know, stained glass and so on and so forth. Some of them are just old in the way that you think they might stop working very soon. It's a combination of both. But there's also a, a different sort of oldness here, and you've probably noticed it if you've looked carefully. There are so many things around this building that are dedicated to people. And for the most part, none of us know who any of those people are. That's sort of an interesting thing. If you think about it, the stage 
has dedications towards the bottom. And the, right over here by the organ is a dedication. The stained glass all has dedications. The stage in the basement has a dedication. There are plaques in the hallway. There are plaques in that room to the side. There's a cornerstone carved with a remembrance of the people who laid it in 1900. The building completed in 1902. It's a really interesting thing. Now, the truth is, I happen to know a little bit about some of the history, and there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, one of them is I'm just flat out a history nerd, and I read anything I can, and I find this sort of thing fascinating. So, those of you who've been around me over the last couple of weeks have probably got sick of me reading from G.E. Uh, Selbred's uh, Antecedent History of the Church of Greenfield. And uh, all, all of our little, you got a little quote in the front of the bulletin. He wrote this in 1902 after they dedicated their building and said everything that happened in Greenfield Church up until that point. So we know a little bit about it. And they've left, they've left some old documents here. Most of them, unfortunately, got taken to the main archives. Maybe we'll try and track them down. But I found an old set of session minutes from the leadership of the church. And it was, it was involving a very difficult controversy in the late 1920s, early 1930s. The pastor of the church had been removed. We're not sure why, but after he was removed, he refused to leave the parsonage. This created a problem, a very tricky relational problem and a difficult financial problem because they couldn't call a new pastor while there was already a pastor in the parsonage. And for two years, they wrote letters back and forth between the session and the presbytery. What are we going to do? Well, they survived. They did. I don't know, I don't know the, the trail of letters left off just when it was getting really interesting. <laughs> they had, but they had hard times here. And I'm pretty certain the pastor they ended up calling was a pastor named Rogers, whose plaque is in the hallway. And he must have had a remarkable enough ministry that they left the plaque when he was gone. And as I'll tell you later, Pastor Rogers had a role in my grandparents' life as well. So I'm thankful that those prayers were answered and that he was brought here. There are witnesses here that remind us that churches endure hard things, that life can be hard, that ministry can be hard, but that people before us look to God, seeking to give Him glory even when things were hard. Most of the plaques that you will see say things like, to the glory of God, in memory of, in honor of. Or lists of servicemen who served in the war. And we know the church that was here spanned the Great Depression. It began in 1902 when no one had a car. But before they were done, people had gone to the moon. They were texting back and forth, sending emails on the internet. We had, we had gone more in the lifespan of this church than, than could possibly have been imagined by anyone. Those witnesses that we have, those plaques that people that we don't really know, the remembrances of those who have gone before us, people who sat in these pews and prayed prayers to God, asking for help with their family and their church and their country, remind us that God is faithful. The reading we have today is a reading that tells us about the importance of witnesses. The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, was a long chapter full of great people in the Old Testament who did great things. We also know from the Old Testament, they also, same people, made mistakes, sometimes tremendous ones. But they were people who walked in faith. They walked through hard times. Abraham, Moses, the judges, in a difficult season. There were prophets that were sawn in two because of their faithfulness to God. 
And those people, the author of Hebrews looks at and says, those witnesses surround you and encourage you. Now, sometimes when we think of the word witness, we think of people looking at us. And often when we read Hebrews 12, we think of a race and a race being run and perhaps the witnesses in the stands looking at us. It's possible, but the context is much more likely that what the author means is that the witnesses are all telling you what they witnessed. And that's usually how we use the word, isn't it? If you have a trial and you call forward a witness, they don't say, here I am looking at you, but they say, no, I saw something important. These people in Hebrews are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, people that testified that in the midst of hard times, God was faithful. And they called the people here in this letter, the ones hearing this message for the first time, called them to turn their focus to the saving purposes of God in the midst of hard times. Witnesses that have gone before us here in this building serve a similar role. I wish I could tell you stories about every person on every plaque. I can't do that. But I can tell you a few. And I want to do that tonight to remind you that we stand on the shoulders of giants. That we live in a, in a shell of a building where people were faithful in their ministry. They sacrificed and they looked outward to others. And they remind us and call us and challenge us to do the same so that we too can have an enduring ministry. One of the reasons I can do that is my own family is tied up with this building. Some of you know that. I actually didn't know how deeply the ties were until recently. I, I knew that my grandfather had attended here. He, I knew that he lived on the street. I knew he was from Pittsburgh. It was one of the reasons we moved to the street. And years ago, our church rented things from this building. The people there at the time still knew my grandfather. and We had a, a reasonable relationship. It made rental easy. That group has unfortunately passed away. And when the building was sold to us, there was no longer any relational continuity, not through my family. But I began to read, digging into some of the memoirs of my grandfather and other information of my family. And I was able to discover that actually four generations of my family were members of this church. I didn't know that. My Aunt Lynn here today was baptized in this church before a family moved when she was two years old. I didn't actually really know that. But there are those moments in life where you think maybe God is going out of his way to remind us that he loves to work through his people down through the ages. And that the prayers of those who've gone before us are perhaps even now upholding our congregation as we press forward in ministry in a new way. Point two, what do the witnesses tell us? What do the witnesses do? There's a great cloud of witnesses, we're told. But the function of the cloud of witnesses is not that we spend all of our time looking at them, but they are, as it were, standing with their fingers out, pointing to Jesus. They are signposts, telling us of God's faithfulness. But the role of the witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12 is that they would encourage us to run with endurance, looking to Jesus. Because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lie aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus. Now, there are two things in the passage that we're told would make it hard for us to endure. We need endurance. Why? Uh, first thing is that we have problems within. There's a weight and a sin that so easily entangles every person 
Every congregation struggles with the corrupt desires of their own heart. We have problems within us. We do well to remember that, particularly in times and ages where uh, we live in a deeply polarized country and it's so easy to look outward and find all of the problems with someone else. The Christian faith and the practices of the church call us to humility. We confess our faith and our sin in every service, remembering that we are people deeply dependent on the mercy of God. Because we are a people for whom sin clings so closely, it's really good that Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. Jesus endured the cross. He stood in the place people like you and me. People who prefer our independence and autonomy to the rule of God. Who would rather do it our way than submit to the kind graces and mercy of God as he calls us to himself? We have hurt others and we've offended God. But there is a Savior, a mediator, the Lord Jesus, who went to the cross willingly for people like me and you that we could be forgiven. And so in every worship service, we not only remember our sin, but we remember his grace. We confess our sin, but we hear the assurance of pardon, remembering that there indeed is a Redeemer, that Jesus Christ has gave Himself fully and finally for us, that we can be forgiven and walk in newness of life. There's a second problem, though, and a second solution. The second one comes a little bit later. If we look ahead in the passage, verse 3 speaks of enduring hostility against ourselves. Now, it says this, Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The implication is that we, too, experience hostility from others. And this is the course of life. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. On the old, I'll date myself here, on the old sitcom Cheers, a bar set in Boston, one of the characters walked in named Norm, and he always had a saying. They would say, Norm, how's it going? And he'd always have some saying about how the world was really hard. The one I remember most, he said, uh, said, how's it going? And Norm said, it's a dog-eat-dog world and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. (laughs) It's a statement of uh, theological depth, even if it's playfully presented. It's a hard world. There's hostility from others. Sometimes identification with Jesus can bring hostility Some of it comes just because we're human and we live in a fallen world. But there's good news also for that. We need to hear and be reminded that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run the race with endurance, bringing our weakness, our brokenness, our sin to the cross of Christ. But as we walk through a difficult and hard world, we continue to look at Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our hope. We continue to come back to this again and again. My, my Aunt Lynn gave me a letter just tonight. It came from her grandmother, May. I think it was sometime in the 40s. She wrote a letter to the pastor about the things they needed to do. And one of them was return to the prayer meetings in the middle of the week. That's probably a pretty good idea. But the other one was you need to keep talking about sin and grace and salvation even if we don't want to hear it. I think she was right. Wisdom from the ages. We need to see Jesus. We need to see our need for him and the hope that he offers. We don't want to get too far away from the cross of Christ and the hope of the gospel. It is what sustains us for a race of endurance. 
I want to close with a, a final point, though, and take this slightly a different direction. There are challenges that churches face over the years, and reasons why sometimes congregations don't continue. Sometimes they're simply logistical, generational. People move on and move out, and neighborhoods change. Sometimes congregations fade away because they lose their vision. They lose hold of looking at Jesus, the one who brings grace and life and health through the cross, the one who's ruling and reigning at God's right hand. Sometimes we fade because we lose our doctrine, our teaching, the central belief in the cross. But I think the passage warns us of another possibility. It reminds us of another reality. The the passage tells us that it was the joy set before him that caused Jesus to endure the cross. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And I just want to land on that point tonight because I want to hold that out before our congregation as we look ahead. Can the joy that Jesus had, the joy that caused him to endure the cross, also be our joy, our fuel for ministry? What happens when you lose it? You might be asking, what is the joy that Jesus had? If we look at the full scope of the biblical story, the joy of Jesus was the joy of offering his life as a substitute for people like me and you. Jesus didn't go to the cross reluctantly, half-heartedly. But there was a joy that drove him forward, willingly to go to the cross that you and I could be forgiven. It was joy that won the day. The joy of others like me and you entering into the fellowship of God. Do you remember our reading from the beginning of the service, that call to worship, the fellowship with the Father and with the Son, the internal fellowship within God Himself, the one that in our sin we reject and find ourselves so distant from? Well, Jesus came to restore us to that joy, to bring us back into the fellowship of the living God. And that joy is a joy that we too can experience as we invite others into the relationship with God. That you see, remember the flow of the call to worship, it says our joy will be complete when you hear and know about Jesus too. A church that loses the joy of sharing Christ is a church that loses its vision. What will help us to endure as we look into the future 15 years, 15 weeks, 150 years, remembering that we need Jesus. But even more than that, remembering that we are called not only to know Jesus, but to share Him, to share that hope with others around us. It's at this point I I turn again in closing to the witnesses that have gone before us. Uh, To get just a little bit personal from some of the knowledge I have, Reading Reverend Selbridge's book and the antecedent history of the congregation of Greenfield, we learn that this church was planted by the Presbyterian Church of Hazelwood. In the early 1890s, Greenfield was opening up and immigrants were coming from uh, parts of uh, Wales and Northern Ireland and Scotland and other places. They were coming to Pittsburgh and they stoked the fires of the new steel mills that were churning out steel for all over the country. And many of them were settling in this neighborhood. Some had found their way to Hazelwood. And so a a committee of people was formed. They began to hold prayer meetings. They began to visit homes. And they began, they first set up a chapel. And one of the preachers would come up and preach every afternoon. 
Reverend Selbridge said he believes that every home in Greenfield was visited as they invited them into the fellowship of the church. The church was founded with people here. This building was founded with people that went out very much like the way some of you went out 15 years ago to share the love of God that you had with others beyond you. And I fear the danger of every church is often that we begin to turn inward thinking most of our own comfort, our own purpose, our own plan, and we lose the mission and the glory and the joy of going out to others. There are other ways that this happened. A second example, and this one is more personal. In the late 20s and early 30s, they had a vibrant Sunday school ministry here. One of their Sunday school teachers also worked with the Boy Scouts, a remarkable man named Al. Al had been in an accident in in one of the machine shops. He had lost both legs at the knee and one hand. He had lost four fingers. But he uh, had uh, fought back. He had continued to work. He had continued to pour himself out to the uh, people in the neighborhood. He got married. And though he was unable to have a family, he invested his life through the scouts and through the Sunday school. In his memoirs, my grandfather wrote of this man, a member in this church. We all knew that it was Al's relationship to Jesus Christ that made it possible for him to overcome tremendous adversity and accomplish all that he did. For Al never ceased to praise God with his lips. Yet it was Al's life that gave meaning to his words. He said he might not have 100% of a body, but he was 100% surrendered to the Lord. He encouraged each of us to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, to get into a communicants class, and then join the church. By the time I was in high, a high school sophomore, every one of the 21 young men's Bible school class members was a member of Greenfield Presbyterian Church. Everyone, that is, except me. As a high school senior, I still not joined the church, and though I felt a God-sized void in my heart, and I knew I was a terrible sinner, I somehow didn't feel ready to make such a commitment. And pause that story for a second. Even as Al was reaching out with the Sunday school, the church having, I think, bounced back under the ministry of uh, Pastor Davis or Pastor Rogers, had begun to reach out as well. The top of the hill, for some of you know, is called Greenfield proper, but the lower part, down over the hill, down the many, many steps to the area beside Old Four Mile Run was called the Lower Greenfield, or the Run. It was a place of greater poverty. It was a more difficult place to live. But in the 1930s, Greenfield Presbyterian Church established a mission church down the run. And they actually began to do the very same thing Hazelwood did with them years before. They began to hold afternoon services. They began to give out food to the people that needed a little something extra to eat. Sometime in the mid-30s, a young woman named Helen Toth began to attend his services. Helen would eventually become my grandmother, but her life was difficult. She had uh, grown up uh, functionally as an orphan. Her mother had died in the swine flu epidemic. She had bounced from orphanage to foster care. Things were hard for her. She fought back with spirit, fought to make something of her life. Along the way, the ministry of this church intersected with her. And one Christmas, it was decided that the young people who were involved with the church down the run would come here to do a Christmas service. The idea of the service is that they would 
do something where people brought gifts forward to Jesus. Probably something like the wise men. It was called the white gifts, something like that. The, the white gift giving, the white gifts to the king. And the idea was that some of the young people, Miss Helen in particular, my grandmother, would be involved and they would bring things forward. And Helen must have shown some sort of an interest. Maybe there was something about her that got the attention, but they decided she would have the role of honor. That she would be the one who would come at the end, not bringing food or clothes or other resources, but bringing herself. It was a part of the play. She would come forward and stand herself in the offering plate in some sense and show that what God really desires is our lives and our hearts. Now, what happens next is something that if you saw in a Hallmark movie, you would think it's a little bit contrived. But it's true. The church that had been reaching out to my grandfather through a, a ministry of a, a broken man to broken boys. And the church that had moved its mission church down the run to care for those in need brought together these two unlikely people with difficult stories and difficult lives. And as he sat there that Christmas season, Dwight Kerber, my grandfather, said years later, can't really explain why or how, but the tug on my heart was so great that I knew that this was it. And the next thing I knew, I walked down to the front and I kneeled at the altar alongside that teenage girl, just the two of us, and the minister was praying over us. And only later did I find out that I wasn't really supposed to be part of the play. <laughs> Well, no, nothing happened for two years, but two years later, they met at a party. He walked her home. She said, I kind of like you, and he said, that's a start. <laughs> and eight years and a crazy, eight kids and 50-plus, 40-ish years and tons of grandkids later, the ministry of this church continued to ripple down through the ages. Now that story goes on in many twists and turns. I'm, I'm not going to uh, belabor it with you tonight, but I, I hold it before you fundamentally as an example of joy. I read this, reread this just this past week, and it really struck me. This is what my grandfather said afterwards. He said, like any new Christian, for a while I couldn't get enough of the Lord. I taught Sunday school. I visited missions. I became active in Christian endeavor. I was later the vice president. I finished high school in the middle of the depression, but I got a job and he went through all the things that happened. And later his life would weave into other forms of Christian ministry and service. But when he talks about what fueled him, it was joy. It was the joy of knowing the fellowship of God and bringing it outward to others. Friends, my hope and prayer is that City Reformed will be meeting in this building long after I'm gone. I don't have a plan to go anywhere anytime soon. I'm just saying. My hope and the prayer is that some of us would know children or grandchildren that would pass along or begin to receive leadership of churches in Oakland that we're part of and churches in Greenfield that we're part of. And I believe if we're going to do that, we would do well to remember the witness of those who've gone before us. We would remember 
the mission and the call and the lordship of Jesus that offers grace and hope and power to all, but that we would also remember the joy that fuels our ministry as we bring the hope of Christ and the fellowship of the living God to people around us. Let's pray to that end.